Now it's time for Inspirational Women and my guest, Carrie O'Driscoll, a writer from our local community, a woman very involved both in her personal healing and growth with the desire to share with others so we build a better, a healthier world. Carrie is joining us to discuss her new book, her memoir, Truth Has a Different Shape. Carrie O'Driscoll, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Coming back again, I think it's been about a year or so since we've had a a conversation. Yeah, it's time means nothing anymore. So it's hard to gauge, but I think it has been about a year. (laughs) That is true. In this time, uh, this new reality we live in, time, we're kind of situated in one place most of the time. So it's really hard to kind of peg, oh, I was there. So it must have been that day type of thing, right? Yeah. It is bizarre. To, I think, was that two weeks ago or was it two days ago? I yes. don't know. <laughs> yeah. I know. What a time. And in the course of this, as a writer, do you find it gives you what, more fodder? Does it give you even time to really invest more in writing? Or what's your experience with that, Carrie? Um, you know, in the beginning, I had high hopes. I thought, oh, here we go. This will be forced you know, butt in seat time to write. Um, But I have to say, I feel like everything takes 10 times more effort than it did before. And the writing isn't flowing as well for me. Um, And I think part of that is because I take inspiration from being out in the world and having conversations with people. And um, I'm a huge people watcher. Like, I love getting to the airport early for a flight and just observing people in the airport um so it's actually made it a little harder and then um I volunteer at my local food bank and I have for almost five years and during the pandemic my volunteer hours have more than tripled just because the need is so much greater so actually I have less time to write than I did before we went into the quarantine for the pandemic and so, the, you know, that's a wonderful thing to give back to the community, to do volunteer work. And now you have found that it's tripled, which is really incredible. In normal times, you probably either wouldn't need to or maybe would be otherwise occupied. So you wouldn't be spending that much time. Yeah, there would never be a need for that much. But logistically, everything is so much more challenging the way that we have to prepackage boxes and then we have to deliver things to folks because of the stage that our county is in. People are not allowed to come to the food bank. Um, so we're receiving deliveries two or three days a week from different places. And then we have a crew of very small crew of volunteers because we have to social distance that are putting together boxes. And then we have a huge crew of volunteer drivers that we have to coordinate to drop off food all over the city. So the logistics of it are just so challenging that where it used to take us one day, it's now taking us three. So There are just so many layers of keeping everything safe and, uh, I guess, portable. And, and the need in King County as well. I mean, our county, prior to March of this year, I think, Um, The official statistics were that there were about 800,000 food bank visits a week in King County, and we're close 
to two million now. So just with people losing jobs and job security and schools not being open, so kids can't get food there, the need has more than doubled. That is so incredible. So this wasn't uh, really my thought in in terms of having this conversation, but the fact that you're volunteering, you're sharing with us this great need, we should perhaps give that kind of a shout out that if you can support in in any way of particularly with donations and probably monetary donations, the need is really, really great. The need is enormous. And I would say at this point, because of the logistical challenges, um, if you can find families in need in your community and directly give them money, that's the easiest thing to do. You know, normally I would say give your local food bank monetary donations. But so, for example, our food bank had to close for almost five weeks this summer because our biggest supplier, one of the big, you know, Food Lifeline Northwest Harvest, one of the big ones, had so many positive COVID cases in their warehouse that we ended up having to close. And then we had to close this week for the air quality because we can't be outside for three days packing boxes. And so what that means is when we close, people don't get food. So I would say, you know, go through like your local YWCA or YMCA or find local mutual aid groups in your area that can identify families that need food and donate money to them so that they can just get cash to go buy groceries that they need because the food banks are unreliable at this point you know our supply chain is unreliable and the logistics are just so overwhelming that if we just can get cash to people to buy food that's going to be the most effective thing to help people who are hungry wow that you know that whole scenario just feels sad beyond words just yeah uh, it has definitely exposed some of the biggest cracks in the food bank system. I actually, I love my local food bank and we've done so much good over the years, but at this point I feel like food banks actually shouldn't exist. I feel like we just need to give people money (laughs) to buy food that they need because, you know, we've created this whole infrastructure around the USDA sending food and to these big warehouses and then the big warehouses breaking it down and sending it to all the different individual food banks and then all the individual food banks distributing it out. And when people can't shop for their own food, it makes things really hard. So for example, my family, we have celiac in my family. And I would say easily 60% of the stuff that we prepackage in these boxes for these families, my family wouldn't be able to eat. You know, if, if your kid has a peanut allergy, you get a jar of peanut butter almost every single week. Or we had families you know, we have a lot of Muslim families that we serve. I live in the central district in Seattle. And a lot of times we get pork. That's the only meat we have. And those families don't want pork crossing their door. <laughs> you know, yes. they don't want it coming into their house. And we have no choice. We can't personalize boxes because that would take even longer. It would be impossible, you know, with the volume of food that we're sending out. And so it's just so much more complicated than it needs to be if we could just give people money and they could go out and shop for themselves and get what they need. That does sound like really good common sense. And it feels like the time I can 
reflect to your book, which is what uh, prompted us to connect together this morning and have a conversation about your memoir, Truth Has a Different Shape, which is really a phenomenal read. I think there's so much in taking us on your life journey, on your healing journey, is I think we have that opportunity to really find ways that we connect and apply to our life and and we can learn and, and grow from this. So so first of all, thank you for your utter honesty in sharing um, sharing your life through Truth Has a Different Shape. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I had to get it out. I had to get it out of me. <laughs> well, and, and there's, I think there's a lot of truth uh, just very basic truth in that of needing to get it out because if it stays locked in, my belief just through learning that I have done is that it can be that, a kind of cancer within us. So it's so important to just get that kind of scraped out and out into the open, not meaning we won't get sick, but but there is a, a an importance to that kind of healing. Yeah, I think so too. I, writing for me is this sort of alchemy. It's a way for me to access some of those emotions and really transform them and use that energy to create something that feels meaningful and purposeful as opposed to just sort of, you know, hiding it, locking it away, pretending like it didn't happen or just, you know, glossing over it. Um, I think when we do that, we don't get access to that energy, you know, and to the possibility of transforming it into something positive. And that's, I know people do that in different ways. My daughter is a musician and she does it by making music and, um, you know, everybody does that in different ways. But for me, that's what writing is about. It's really um, this transformative sort of metabolic process. And so in mentioning, it was a good time for us to turn to the book with what we had been discussing in terms of of, uh, the community, of food banks, of supporting each other. Uh, Later into your book, I drew out this sentence, maybe being routinely faced with more than we can handle is the universe's way of ensuring that we continue to find ways to work together and help each other. And I thought, that's what I think we are experiencing right now in, you know, maybe in huge neon letters even. But you wrote this before we were living in this time of pandemic. And now, you know, the layer of the forest fires and smoke and, of course, on the East Coast and into the central, the Southwest they have the hurricanes and looking at flooding and that sort of thing. So we are just really being overwhelmed and inundated with these major crises. And we have to turn to each other. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, we have this culture that teaches us that being independent is the most important thing. I mean, I certainly was taught that as a kid, Um and, and I came across this amazing quote the other day. Um, I wish I could remember who said it, but it said, hyper-independence is a trauma response. And I thought, yes, oh my God, yes, oh my God, yes. <laughs> because I think 
you know, human beings are, we're wired to be in community. We are physiologically rewarded by being in community. There are certain hormones um, that are only secreted when we are in the presence of other people and interacting with them. And yet we talk about independence and being able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, you know, being able to, I mean, my dad taught me, you know, if you can change your tire and change your own oil and, you know, know how to use your hazard lights and all of that, then you don't ever need to rely on anybody, you know? And for him, that, that was a trauma response and he passed that down, right? Because if we learn sometimes that we can't rely on other people, especially if those people are our parents or teachers or, you know, adults in our lives that are supposed to take care of us, then our response often is hyper-independent. Well, fine, then I don't need anybody, mm-hmm. you know? But that goes against our very body chemistry. It goes against the way that we were designed to be as human beings. And so when I wrote that sentence, it was about, you know, maybe this is the universe's way of sort of gently pushing us back to being human in all that it means to be human, which is to be in relationship with other human beings. There will always be things that we can't handle ourselves. And maybe that's a good thing. Right. We don't, we don't have to be like the God who just can handle it all and, and just uh, come up on top of every situation. It, that's not realistic. That's not life. No, it's not. And also, if I think back to, um, you know, some of the most important relationships in my life, some of the closest, most trusting relationships in my life, they were forged because I needed help and I asked for it. And this other person showed up in a way that was meaningful. You know, I mean, if I think about my closest girlfriends, they're the people who were there when... I couldn't pick myself up off the floor, right? Yes. And so I think as a culture, you know, we need to start looking at that. We need to start thinking about things in terms of relationship and interdependence as opposed to independence. Because there's like, even if you live by yourself, you know, on in some secluded area in the middle of nowhere and there are no other human beings around, you're still part of something bigger, right? You have to rely on animals and the land for food and water and, you know, sunshine for vitamin D and that, like you're, you're always connected. It's just a matter of whether you recognize it and utilize that or not. And now it is challenging, as you were saying, with having theoretically all of this time to reflect and do something with that. There are also so many stressors and concerns that it's difficult to maybe see that. But I think this is the opportunity to take a moment to think about that. Read. Let's mention your website, actually, Carrie. I think that, too, is a a good resource because you have some really great blog articles, I'll say, great blogs, that um, cause us you know, some stimulating thinking that to go on. Thank you. Yeah, I've been blogging for almost 20 years now, which is kind of 
<laughs> Man, that makes me feel old. But um, yeah, my website is com, And there's a whole section with all of my blogs on it and then different writings that I've done, different books that I've had work in. So there's a lot of information there around the different variety of things that I've written over the years. So definitely a good website to check out. And, you know, when we have that time to go back to the computer screen, really take that time that in, you know, whatever chunks, bits and pieces that we feel we can to to reflect and, and realize that connection and get more of that insight for ourselves. Because like going back to, you know, how you wrote that sentence continuing to find ways to work together and help each other, it really is greatly underscored during this time that we really do need each other. And even if we can't be together in groups and such, just somehow reaching out to each other and knocking on a neighbor's door and seeing if we can bring them something. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's been pretty amazing. I've spent a lot of time in the last six months learning about mutual aid networks and it's phenomenal. I mean, you know, they've been around for a long time, especially in communities of color um, because they haven't gotten their needs met by the systems that we've created. And so there are these sort of underground mutual aid networks where people help each other, where they give each other cash or they, you know, crowdfund money for diapers for a whole household full of people or, you know, it's pretty astonishing the difference that you can have when you start to look at that and and create those communities. Um, You know, just in my own neighborhood, it's been really terrific to see, you know, people out walking their dogs when we could go outside when it wasn't so smoky. Um, But, you know, people are out walking their dogs or watering their yard or whatever and just checking in with each other. How's it going? Oh, my gosh, I got a bumper crop of, you know, lettuce growing in my backyard. Does anybody need some? Or, um, you know, just really offering to help each other out with different things. And it's amazing how small gestures can really start to be the cement in a neighborhood. Um, you know, those those tiny things of giving away lettuce or I ordered a bunch of gravel to create a walkway between my raised beds and I ended up with almost twice as much as I needed. And so, you know, I put out the call to my neighbors, come, come take what you want, <laughs> please, because I don't want it sitting here forever. And, you know, you go out and you chat with them six feet away with your mask on. But, you know, it just those little tiny things create more connections all the time and it's a great feeling to know that you're part of a community where people are going to look out for each other absolutely yes uh that the sharing component too i think we get to see that occurring more at this time Not that it didn't exist uh, pre-pandemic times, but that was another part of, as you were mentioning, being independent, you know, and I can do it on my own. 
that was also underscored, it seemed, with, you know, having to kind of be the best and, you know, have the latest fashion or do the the biggest extreme sport or something and kind of shine in a spotlight that way. Whereas now, I think we are looking at the simple things and seeing how those simple things are so much greater and give more life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's one of the things, too, that you, it's like one of those lessons that you hear, like, as people are dying, right? You know, just to kind of bring it back to the book as well. My dad was a Marine, and he was a, a macho guy. And, you know, when he was dying, he and I had some of the most amazing conversations. And it was incredibly bittersweet, right? Because, gosh, if we'd had those conversations before he got sick and he was dying, what could our future relationship have been like, you know? And the same with my mom, when she was descending into Alzheimer's, she and I had some really heartwarming conversations and it really built our relationship, which is ironic because she had no idea who I was Mm. (laughs) for most of that time. But still, you know, if we were really brought back to those simple things and to that relational way of being with each other instead of, you know, me being the kid who was trying to impress them with how successful I was and what a good kid they raised, you know? Yes. Um, And I think that that, yeah, I think you're right. I think we're sort of in this time where we can choose to really focus on different kinds of things and to understand that those things that are falling away were pretty much socially constructed in the first place and maybe not necessary. I mean, I will tell you, I'll admit right now to everybody that's listening, I'm still in my pajamas. (laughs) (laughs) I've not gotten dressed or brushed my hair yet. And that's okay. (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely. I would probably be as well, except that I needed to travel to the studio to record this, so I needed to get out of PJs. <laughs> yeah, they they probably would have looked at you strange if you walked in here in pajamas with your hair messed up. <laughs> yeah, potentially, yes. But you're right. I think we can use this time to maybe peel away those layers of superficiality and be honest, be open, uh, reach out, like you said, the connections that you made in those times that you reached out, or or we think about how people reach out to us. Those are, are such strong bonding experiences. Yeah, and they're so important, right, for, for the community as a whole. Yes. The stronger, you know, community is only ever going to be as strong as the connections are between the community members. And, and so if it's as simple as, you know, me texting my elderly next door neighbor to say, I know it's really awful and smoky. I'm going to run to the grocery store today. Do you need anything? Mm -hmm. You know, then amazing, right? That doesn't, it doesn't cost me anything and it builds trust and relationship within the community. And also the possibility that, you know, if she ever gets into a jam and really does need something and I haven't asked, she'll feel comfortable to reach out and say, oh, my gosh, I really need some help. Yes, absolutely. And that's a beautiful example of something concrete we can 
do right now is that kind of simple reaching out. And as you were sharing earlier in terms of uh, connecting in our own individual communities with um, either knowing someone who could use those funds, you know, getting a, a gift certificate or giving the cash and saying, here, I know you need, might need some food, so please go for it. Yeah, it's a really powerful thing. And there's and that's not to say it's it's easy. It's not easy for people to ask, right? There's this whole shame that's around not being able to provide for yourself and your family. Um, and so it is difficult for people to ask. But that's what's so powerful about these mutual aid groups and the community care organizations is that they've started from the level of building relationships. And so it becomes a lot easier to admit that you need help if you already have a trusted relationship with somebody else. Very true. And with the time, these times that we're living in, seeing how, you know, everyone is hard hit and the majority of us are in that area of not having unlimited funds. We're not in the top, whatever it is, 2%. So we're kind of in the same boat and being able to maybe have more compassion, more empathy, and uh, and reach out on whichever side it is, and together we will become stronger. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, any, any community is only going to be as strong as the connections between the individual community members. And and the more we can recognize other people's struggles without judging, um, you know, the more we're going to be able to build relationships because that judgment presents a barrier to being in an authentic, real, trusting relationship with someone. Um, and, and so if we can set that aside and say, I don't know how you got to this point, and I recognize that you're at this point and you're struggling and I have the resources that I can help you. So let me help you. you know? Yes. yes. Um, it doesn't have to be a, I, my, um, I was talking to somebody the other day who is a financial planner and he was joking with me that, you know, none of the work that I'm doing with mutual aid groups is tax deductible. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay. I mean, I don't care at this point, right? And I can afford not to care at this point. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm comfortable right now. But it's at this point, it it is more important to me to build a strong community to live in than it is to, you know, get a tax refund next year. Um, and and I understand that that's a challenge, but that's you know, that would be a huge challenge for some people. But in some cases, it's $5, right? Yes. I mean, I've, um, I had a woman approach me a few weeks ago um, from a mutual aid group in South King County, and she is part of an indigenous community. And she said, we are desperate for diapers and baby wipes. They're so expensive. And it, like, we just, we have this whole community of indigenous families that are really struggling. And I put something on my Facebook page and um, something on Twitter. And within 24 hours, you know, people had given me a total of $700. Wow. I mean, $5 here, $15 there. 
you know, I mean, people aren't, you're not going out to eat right now. You're not spending very much money on gas. Like what else, you know? And I was able to send her, yeah, within 24 hours, I was able to send her $700 to go buy diapers and wipes for the indigenous community. I mean, I've been blown away by the generosity of folks and also the efficiency. You know, people are super willing to be like, I'll Venmo you, you know, a hundred bucks. And, you know, all it takes is there's nothing formal about it, right? It was, I was at the food bank. This woman came and said, do you have any diapers? And I said, I'm really sorry. We don't, and we're not allowed to have people come up, you know, and get things directly from the food bank. And, but how can I help you? Right. It was a five minute exchange. Yes. And. Oh, that, that is so beautiful. (laughs) So your Facebook page we can access that through your website, can we? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Perfect. Because those are the kinds of things that really help us to heal, to grow. And I'm going to then bring it back to your book, this memoir we're here to discuss this morning. <laughs> truth has a different shape. So much about about truth becoming more aware of ourselves. It's not uh, an instant fix by any means, but the awareness is so critical to becoming who we are. And and look at the way that you are in the community and helping us to really become aware of that as well, Carrie. I am so grateful that uh, that you wrote Truth Has a Different Shape and encourage everyone to really get a copy, become aware of it, and become more of who we are meant to be on this earth. Thank you. I'm really excited for it. It's hard to release a book at the beginning of a pandemic, but I did recently find out that um, the publisher um, and the distributor nominated the book for the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Award. So Excellent. hopefully that will mean it, you know, it sparks interest among more people too. Absolutely. Yes. And I hope this does as well as, uh, you know, we begin to realize how connected we are and the the real gift that there is in that, the value there is in that. So thank you so greatly for using your gift in this way in writing and for taking time with us this morning. Thank you. I appreciate it. I always love talking to you, Kate. It's been wonderful. Thanks. And with that, we're at the end of a very full hour of Inspirational Women with Carrie O'Driscoll and Sunday Morning Magazine with Nick Nicholas. I'm Kate Daniels, your host, and I greatly appreciate your sharing this hour with me and these special guests. For details you might have missed or information you'd like to know, please just send me an email, kated at warm1069.com, and I will get right back to you. Also, if you'd like to listen again or share these important stories with your family and friends, Find the podcast on our Warm 106.9 webpage. Click on the podcast tab, then Sunday mornings or inspirational women and look for the guest names. I now wish you and your family a day of healing, of communicating more openly with each other. Have a week of the same and then please plan to join me again next weekend for another hour of Sunday Morning Magazine and Inspirational Women on Warm 106.9. Good morning.